Today, I'm joined once more by award-winning medical journalist, Jerome Byrne, for an emergency discussion on all things COVID following the disclosure last week that the virus was leaked from Wuhan and top people knew about this early on. We'll also be looking more closely at the adverse effects and deaths and the early results on booster trials emerging from recent scientific publications. So, hello, Jerome. Hello. Now, last week, at the start of last week, we had the hot news that Djokovic, um, coincidentally named Novak, uh, had won the first set against the Australian government. But the game is not over with some irregularities in his uh, visa application. However, all that was trumped by the latest on the Wuhan leak. So what has been happening about the Wuhan leak? and the apparent conspiracies thereof. Well, it's, uh, it, it's a really big and extraordinary story. And it, um, the fallout from it is, I think, going to go on for weeks. But uh, the short version is that last week, a congressional hearing in America um, was uh, asking about some emails which had been which they had come across uh, the details are not quite clear but there were emails which were about uh, exchanges between top scientists um, both UK and America um, uh, Anthony Fauci uh, the, the godfather of viral and, and public health issues in America and um, uh, a guy Collins, who's an, another key American player, and people uh, from the U uh, from the U uh, U UK, such as the director of the Wellcome Trust, um, and many other ones, were exchanging doc uh, documents and emails around the issue of where has the virus come from, um, and the issue of whether it had been created. Uh, in a lab uh, in Wuhan, or whether it was just uh, developed naturally in the wild and then jumped into humans. Um, and as most people will know, uh, the idea that it had been leaked from a lab and even more had been tinkered with in the lab so it was more effective and more likely to infect humans um, was fiercely rejected and anyone who uh, made claims about it, uh, uh, websites, um, programs, uh, were all fiercely dismissed as a fake news, rubbish, nonsense. Um, and what has emerged from these emails, which the Americans are looking at now, is that uh, the idea that there was an escape and the evidence that supports the idea of an escape to do with the unusual features in the virus's um, DNA um, actually were well known way back uh, two years ago um, and were considered to be really uh, quite likely, the idea of it, it being engineered was, was quite likely. But what happened was that it was felt that this news was so shocking, the idea that um, 
uh, top scientists such as Fauci had actually been involved in the, uh, that work in Wuhan and had been funding it as well, um, which then resulted in the virus which has subsequently killed um, hundreds of thousands of people in uh, America and, and the UK and, and millions around the world um, had come from a deliberate uh, activity by scientists. Um, and so what we have from the documents already, and it, it's very early days and there may be changes, you have to excuse if I'm a little bit um, uh, hesitant over this because I'm picking it up from the uh, newspaper reports. Um, but you've got uh, Dr. Fauci emailing Dr. Francis Collins saying uh, it, it could have been uh, accidentally created uh, in a uh, virus that was primed for rapid transmission between humans. That's exactly the, the claim that was being fiercely denied. Um, and uh, Collins, a former director, uh, director of the US National Institutes of Health, um, warned that uh, this information to get out could damage international harmony. Um, and there was a book published about a couple of months ago, which was about a Chinese scientist who had been pursuing the where did the virus come from story and had come under fierce attack from uh, Chinese and other authorities uh, for suggesting that it could have come from the lab. And um, the, her co-author on the book was Viscount Ridley. Um, and he said, these emails, the ones that have just been released, show a lamentable lack of openness and transparency among Western scientists who appear to have been more interested in shutting down a hypothesis they thought was actually very plausible. Um, so uh, there's an awful lot more to it, and I can go into it more if, if you think it's worthwhile, but essentially we're waiting to see how this plays out. And of course, it's going to have um, huge in, uh, influence on the idea that suggesting things um, about treatment for the virus that aren't mainstream, the, the, the tendency which we're very familiar with of it being dismissed as fake news, lacking evidence, um, not true misinformation, uh, has to be looked at again and taken with a large pinch of salt because all sorts of other things have been dismissed, other treatments, um, minerals, vitamins, diet, all sorts of things have been dismissed in this casual way. And it's now very clear that the authorities are very prepared to dismiss things that they think doesn't fit with their narrative. Um, and I would really expect there to be fireworks as a result. Well, yeah, and I've almost finished reading uh, uh, The Advocate, the lawyer's book, um, that is uh, Robert Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. And I think anybody who's genuinely interested in, you know, what's going on in, in a big way has to read that book. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, but, you know, there's a lot of facts in there. And it, it's uh, although this sort of sounds off topic, the reality of this makes a lot of sense because the first the first uh, 
big breakthrough for Anthony Fauci. And I didn't realize this came with the drug AZT, which is a very toxic drug for AIDS. And at the time, I had uh, just gone over to California, San Francisco, when AIDS broke and was volunteering in a group called the Center for Attitudinal Healing and came across uh, some people who'd had fully blown um, AIDS, T-cell counts crashing, carposis, sarcoma. Uh, you know, they had AIDS, no question, and were now fine. Uh, and I came back and I wrote an article, rightly or wrongly, called AIDS Can Be Cured, and just told the story of people who'd made what in effect was a full recovery. And at that time, if you were HIV positive, it was assumed that you would die. And there were only a certain number of centers in the UK that could treat you. And they told you effectively, there's no cure, but you can join this trial for AZT. Uh, and so it was sort of AZT or nothing. And when you, when you signed up for the trial, you had to promise you wouldn't take things like vitamin C and so on. And so I got onto vitamin C and viruses, in this case, AIDS, very early on, and suddenly found that I was being burgled three times in a row, followed, photographed, vilified, uh, ended up having to take some legal action. And I was called by a private investigator into a, a meeting uh, with about almost a dozen other people. And we weren't allowed to speak to each other. And each of us had had, I think some had had death threats. Each of us had been really attacked a lot. And what we had in common was we all had a different view about AIDS than AZT. So the book explains how that became a sort of blockbuster and basically how everything else must be shut down with a chapter in relation to COVID on ivermectin and how that was shut down and vitamin D and how that was shut down. So it, it really creates this environment and it saddens me tremendously. I mean, only in the last couple of days, I've heard from the brilliant uh, professor of emergency medicine, formerly with the East Virginia Medical School. Uh, this is Paul Marrick. Paul Marrick was one of the first uh, emergency medicine guys to really understand that steroids um, that make a big difference. And we've all heard about dexamethasone. Uh, this was laughed at at the time. Steroids was not part of the treatment for sepsis. And then when COVID came along, he already knew about vitamin C and had researched vitamin C plus steroids being a magical solution together with antioxidants and uh, proceeded to save lives. And when I interviewed him earlier um, in uh, last year, he was basically saying no one's dying in our intensive care units who isn't both over age 85 and already had an end stage disease. Now, Paul Marek's been um, sacked. Uh, and uh, the reason is that he's no longer allowed, and this is happening a lot in the States, he's simply not allowed to use ivermectin, vitamin C, or, or you know any other treatments. And he sued the hospital because he couldn't bear being in a situation of a patient whose life he has to save, he knows how to save their lives, and he's simply not being allowed to do so. So behind this story, not only is the you know, shocking thing that we may have a virus that's altered, they call it gain of function, and leaked, and kills millions, but also the idea that while this is you know, secretly being known as very plausible, every other avenue other than you know, vaccines and obviously lockdown and masks is being shut down. I think that's also part of the story, wouldn't you think? Well, yes. Um, I mean, I, I've been amazed. I, I've been following uh, the what you've been doing with uh, 
the vitamin C and presenting data to uh, NICE and, and other authoritative bodies and saying, look, here is the evidence, here's stuff that really makes sense. Here are um, research done by people who are experts in the field. And the way that it's been just consistently ignored um, is, is remarkable. The, the idea that uh, there are quotes from some of the main bodies saying we are working really hard to uh, doing everything we can to find cures and to find things that help. Um, and it just isn't the case. The, um, the latest drug which is being um, pushed as being a, a possible treatment um, for people who've got COVID already, um, you're going to have to just help me with the, <laughs> the name of it. It's um, Milopurin, I, I think it is. This is I the Mulinia Papivira drug. Yes, they're all wrong. Yes, that one, yeah. Yeah. Which, yes. which is an astounding drug in that um, one of the things about it is that it uh, induces uh, uh, genetic uh, changes. Um, and uh, that, of course, is one of the things that is a problem with the virus. The genetic changes are supposed to make it um, less uh, effective, but it can quite easily go the other way and lead not only to more effective infections, um, but also to create other disorders. But if you put something in that's encouraging mutations into the body, you have no control over it. And yet this drug is the one that's just recently been licensed uh, for treatment. And I think its cost is in the realm of uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, yes, molnopiravir. However, you pronounce that, and uh, you know this highly toxic drug is, you know, claimed by Sajid Javid to be a real breakthrough. And before that, we had the release of Remedisvir, which is a highly ineffective antiviral agent. And these all, really, you know, if you compare them to vitamin C, they just don't compare, um, either on efficacy or on safety. And yet here we are. Uh, you know, in if you like, round two of sales, not just vaccines, but now we've got antivirals, and let's suppress anything else that can compete with this market. And all of this, of course, makes um, it is even worse when you look at where we've got to with the booster, because mm -hmm. we've been um, the, the story we've been told about the vaccine has consistently been far too over-optimistic about what it can do. At first, it was going to be 90% effective. Um, and then subsequently turned out that the effectiveness dropped off very quickly. And we've now got to the point where we're having to have uh, booster shots. Um, so that, and, and not only just a booster, the one that was being rolled out in the last few months, um, but it looks like the, it's been accepted that the, we're going to have to have continuous boosters, um, which then takes you into a whole muddy set of waters to do with what exactly is the, the, the proteins which are being e e injected with the vaccination. 
how long do they last in the body and what do they do? Because they're not like the ones that go in for normal vaccines, which will be cleared up by the body. Um, and there are studies and, and research and so on being done, which suggests that um, they could be having a wide range of effects in the body, which we're only just going to find out as the, uh, the months go on. Um, they certainly can affect the uh, heart and the cardiovascular system, and they also get into liver and other parts of the body. And exactly what's going on with them is, is still very much unknown. But there is uh, this refusal to investigate or to look at um, these problems because there's this dominant narrative that the vaccine is safe, effective, and uh, the only thing we need to do to be responsible citizens is to take it and to take it often if we're told to. And yet lurking on the sidelines um, are these other things which can all, which uh, look like they're certainly worth checking out in detail, ivermectin and uh, other and, and vitamin C and the whole package of minerals and vitamins. And yet uh, this is still being dismissed as fake news. And the recent revelations show that we should be very suspicious now of when Facebook or Twitter or other platforms close down uh, details of things that don't fit this overarching narrative um, because there's absolutely no hesitation to do that, even though you know that what they're talking about is, um, has got a lot of truth to it. I mean, the funny thing is, if you, you know, the purpose of a drug company is to make money for its shareholders. And we know that Pfizer have made you know, many, many billions, and they're doing extremely well in the space. They spend billions on advertising. And actually, uh, we don't always see this, but funding uh, you know, media outlets, including radio, television, and so on. And in the UK, the UK government is one of the biggest advertisers right now, spending hundreds of millions, in effect, promoting, you know, the Pfizer product. And the irony of all of this is that it's the ineffectiveness of the double vaccine. I, mean, I was listening to the radio, and in comes a government ad, basically saying, you know, two jabs uh, is not sufficient, you know, to protect you. Uh, so it's the it's the it's the waning off rapidly of the two vaccinations that is the case for selling the booster. And now a study's just come out in Denmark, which does show some uh, uh, basically a 30 percent reduced risk of transmitting Omicron if you have two vaccines and a booster. But it goes on to say that, um, yeah, we found a one point one seven times higher secondary attack rate um, in the unvaccinated, 2.6 times higher for the fully vaccinated and 3.6 times higher for the booster vaccinated. And this, this sort of, uh, this is not just a level field, but actually increased um, risk of, of uh, infection, they say demonstrates strong evidence of immune evasiveness um, for the Omicron variant. In other words, vaccines aren't working. So the next sale, will be, uh, we're really sorry, boosters aren't working particularly well. What we now need is a reworked vaccine um, for the new variant. So it's like the ineffectiveness of the drug 
becomes the sale uh, for taking the next one, you know, and this is all coming out of the same industry that created it in the first place. I mean, the level of trust uh, must be, you know, crashing. Um, however, it is extraordinary how many members of the public don't really even think about them, just follow the instructions. Well, there was a, um, a very extraordinary and impressive paper which came out from a group of um, researchers in Canada, which looked in detail at the, um, uh, I think it was the six month um, report on the trials that had been done on Pfizer drug. And this of course was done by the company, um, which should ring bells, but it's just so normal that no one seems to think it's strange that people uh, uh, mark their own homework, so to speak. Um, but what this showed was that the way that the trials had been done, which are now being used to say this is safe and effective, missed out on nearly all of the standard ways that you do trials. I mean, one of the most basic ones was that the um, claim that the, var that the vaccine was 90% effective in stopping transmission was based on a, <clears throat> a relative analysis um, of the data. What was the relative difference as a relative and absolute effect of any kind of drug? And if you get, look at the relative one, it's, slight, it's rather more complicated, um, but it produces a much higher benefit. If you have a drug which you need two people to treat, and uh, you increase that to three, you've got a, I think it's right in saying a 30% improvement, but actually it's only going from one, from two to three. So if you look at the, that, that's the absolute number and the absolute numbers involved in, in, in uh, uh, greater effectiveness of the drug compared with um, a, a placebo in the trials, was from something like 0.1 to uh, 0.2 or 3. So it was a, a very, very low actual number of, of benefit, but it was expressed in this relative way, which made it look much more effective. It's and like, it's, course, like it's, it's, it's a bit like saying, um, I mean, these are not you know, accurate figures, but it's a bit like saying, let's say men have twice the chance of being um, killed in a car accident than women. So you say twice the risk, but actually um, only one in a million uh, you know, women get killed in car accidents and it's two in a million for men. So you know, the, difference, yeah. the difference is you know, in your risk by being male is actually you know, tiny, one in a million. And that's the difference between what you're talking about, the relative risk being twice the risk, and Much the better examples, actually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, we did a we did a a blog on that uh, in my January COVID news. When you look at what I always wish one would ask when offered a drug by a doctor, which is the numbers needed to treat for a benefit, how many people need to be vaccinated to keep one out of uh, ICU admission, for example, and it was you know around the one in you know three thousand people have to be vaccinated to keep one out of ICU admission. That's the actual number. 
And then, and then the other side of all of this, which so often doesn't get factored in, is how many people need to be treated for harm uh, to occur. And, yeah. you know, and that whole area, we did a, our last podcast with Dr. Bernard Talabani, whose job is to convert the vaccine hesitant to get vaccinated. And what was very interesting there, and it sort of helped me to understand things a bit more, she sort of wasn't very trusting. She says, now we are in the post-surveillance stage. So a drug gets launched, in this case, a vaccine, very, very fast. And the critical thing is now you have millions of people on it. Um, is it safe? Uh, is it dangerous? We're not going to see if the instance of something like Willem-Barr syndrome is one in a million or one in a hundred thousand or whatever, we're not going to see it in the actual trial. So you have to have this post-surveillance. But the problem with post-surveillance is that it's passive. And that means it will be very underreported. It depends upon almost always doctors reporting something. Um, so you also have to look at trials. And one of the things that sort of, you know, really shocked me there is that when I looked at the latest sort of fuller Pfizer study, this was the 22,000 people given the Pfizer vaccine or placebo, uh, the overall mortality, the all-cause mortality was higher in the vaccine group. So she was saying, you know, you can't rely on the passive reporting, which I'd like to talk about because we've got real numbers on there. You have to look at studies. And when a drug company's own study is already showing, albeit small, but an increased you know, risk of mortality in the vaccine versus placebo group, you know, it should get us scratching our heads. It's a little bit like the scandal we covered many years ago was the increased rate of suicide in people taking antidepressants versus placebos which took about 10 years to, you know, come out into the public domain. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, I mean, these, these things do take a long time. Um, and one of the implications, which is perhaps not fully understood of the, um, the vaccine and the boosters, is that um, once you get to a, a certain level, um, vaccines uh, or viruses and bacteria um, mutate very quickly when they're under attack or under pressure from either from people who've been vaccinated uh, or from people who've um, already got immunity because they've been infected. And what happened, this is what drives the arrival of new strains. And so we're trying to outrun um, viral evolution with our um, constant talk of, of the booster, because the, the more that you make things difficult for the virus, um, the more it begins, it mutates faster and throws up new variants. And because the vaccine and vaccinations only target a particular aspect of the virus's makeup, in this case, the spike protein, uh, when you've got, uh, if that has playing less of a role in the virus, um, or um, that there's some way that the viral virus has developed in order to um, neutralize the attacks on it, um, you get a, you get further variants coming out which aren't able to be speedily treated 
Although, interestingly, a natural immunity is something that doesn't have that specificity of a vaccine, and so it can pick up on other features of the virus and respond to that. Um, so our policy of giving more boosters uh, is driving more variants, which it's harder for vaccines to effectively deal with. Um, you which again, of course, sorry to keep going, but, but then of course, brings you back to, well, there are other things that you could be doing, which are all being left on the side. Well, there's a bit of good news there. Uh, my MP asked a question in the, in the House on vitamin C, and uh, we've finally got a response from the Department of Health. Uh, and it says, uh, it's quite, although some clinical trials, trial results do show promise for vitamin C to support COVID-19 treatment and recovery, uh, the studies are limited by small sample sizes, which is true. There are differences in dose and duration, um, and there are no pre and post intervention plasma vitamin C concentrations. So the idea here, all of which I agree with, is in an ideal world, you have a very big study and you do measure vitamin C before and after. Uh, and normally you do what we call a dose finding study. You do different doses and different durations and you'd sort of find out, which by the way is what's happening. Uh, the uh, NICE National Institute of Clinical Excellence have accepted from us that is the vitamin C for COVID um, group, uh, that there are 18 relevant clinical trials. So that's a bit of good news that there's kind of another approach, because as you say, uh, you know, always fighting on the back foot, trying to create a vaccine for the next variant and so on, uh, may just be completely the wrong concept. But the difference is a vaccine can be patented and profitable, something like vitamin C, vitamin D, or the drug ivermectin, which is off patent, can't. But you and your wife had an interesting booster experience, didn't you? And I'm particularly interested in what happened uh, when, uh, when you tried to get into the yellow card reporting system. Can you tell us a little about that? <clears throat> well, yes. I mean, although I am... Um vaccine, it would probably be fair to say vaccine hesitant. I, I'm not opposed to vaccinations. Those that are done well and efficiently with proper um, testing seem absolutely brilliant lifesavers. Um, but in this particular case, I've read enough to know that there are things that one can, um, that raise red flags about what might be happening down the road, long-term effects. So I was reluctant to get a booster, but then like many people, I was persu persuaded um, that because there were vulnerable members in the family, people with chest infections or um, who had had uh, COVID before or had, uh, were suffering from long COVID, um, that it made sense to do whatever you could to cut the risk that they would have a problem. Um, <clears throat> so we had a, a booster. I hadn't had any problems from having a first and second uh, jab, um, but the booster knocked me out for at least a, two, two or three days, just with headaches and tired and night sweats and all of those things, Not, nothing major at all, 
but it was just um, um, mildly debilitating. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, why one uh, earlier ones didn't produce anything and this one did, whether it was a buildup of, of the vaccine that was in there already. Um, but when we tried, to, and my wife suffered the uh, similar sort of reaction to, to her uh, booster, um, when we tried to get on to do the, the yellow card, it was really quite tricky and to find it and to um, fill in the boxes and to do it within the, the time frame and so on was a, um, you know, it, it wasn't a simple operation and you couldn't do it via your GP, you had to do it yourself online. And the, the significance of that for me is that it suggests that the reports of problems with um, uh, having a booster, are, they're probably wildly underreported um, because making those uh, reports aren't that easy. And the old system where it went through a GP who was set up to do it, um, I think possibly understandably, but nevertheless, the fact is that it doesn't happen routinely through a GP. Um, so if given that that's one of the main sources of uh, information about how many uh, side effects there are, um, it doesn't seem likely that it's picking up a true picture at all. And I think you said to me at the time that you filled out the form, which was fine, but it either then times out or it just trips up. So, you know, you could fill the whole thing out, press the button, nothing happens, and you've got to go back to square one. So, um, uh, Yeah, it's one of those things that's all too familiar in other areas where you go through it and go through it and go through it, and you get to almost the end, and then there's some error or something missing, and, and you're, yeah. you're sent back to the beginning again. And the reality is that most yellow card reports are from doctors. And uh, to give a big picture before we sort of home in on some of the interesting recent findings on peri and myocarditis, for example, in the UK, we've just hit the 2000 um, death mark. And that is when a doctor or member of the public um, reports uh, a death that has occurred shortly after vaccination. And I got a figure that roughly 50% uh, are deaths within two days of vaccination. And there are even a small number of people who died in the vaccine center. So, you know, these are associated with, they're not necessarily caused by, but they're very close. And the number in the UK is 2000. The number in the US uh, on, on their system, which is called VAERS, was 20,000. And the US is five times our size. So you know, if it was 2,000 in the UK, you'd expect 10,000 in America. But I've learned recently that actually the VAERS system is also used by countries or people outside of America. And the actual US population reported dying in association with vaccination is 10,000. So it's completely consistent with the UK's 2,000, given the population size. And then the question that you raise, I've been digging into, which is what, that's always a fraction. We know it's a fraction of what really happens. And, but is it a 10th? Is it a fifth? What is it? And then I found in the US, there's a, um, a legal case uh, using um, 45,000 deaths that the lawyers think there is a good case that these have been attributed to the vaccine. So, 10,000 is what's actually reported. So we're looking at sort of 
Oh, five times is probably where it's going to be at. There was a UK study uh, by the uh, Drug Surveillance Unit, which showed that the underreporting was usually only one in 10 deaths got reported, but this would be two in 10 or one in five. So probably, you know, plus or minus a few thousand will likely to end up right now with about 10,000 deaths associated with the vaccine. Uh, not all of them will be caused by it in in uh, Norway, when they had 30 people drop dead post-vaccination in a care home, they investigated it. One third, they said, was causal. One third was possible and one third was not. So the point is, however you cut the numbers, you know, one third of 10,000 deaths, this is the single biggest ever um, recorded post-surveillance deaths from any treatment ever occurring in the UK. And the same in, in the US. And despite that, in the UK, the Medicines Health Regulation Authority say none is causal. They don't say how they reach that conclusion. And the CDC, the Center for Disease Control uh, in the US, they also say, you know, none is causal. No, no, no substantiation of that. Uh, but there is this extreme mismatch <laughs> between you know, data, whether it be in actual trials like Pfizer's or passive reporting on yellow cards, et cetera. Um, and this total denial of the possibility that even one death could be caused by a vaccine. But last week, there was an autopsy report in the US where the, uh, the coroner said this death was caused by the vaccine. So you know, again, we have this big mismatch between what the numbers are showing and what the our governments are telling us. Yeah, well, um, it, it's kind of not surprising that there are these holes and mismatches and lack of looking at it because the suppression program which is going on um, to get rid of or silence anything um, or anyone who challenges uh, mainstream statements, um, one of the things that's emerged is the number of very senior scientists who have been closed down um, uh, in various ways as a result of speaking out. I mean, there's, um, you know, these are people who, uh, I'm just looking at a, a report here, there's uh, someone who was a uh, senior, uh, he worked for a number of big companies, uh, GSK, Novartis, vaccine, vaccine expert. He also worked for Bill Gates, also on a, a, a Ebola program manager for uh, uh, the Global Alliance for Vaccines. So very serious, knows his stuff, very important. Um, and his uh, statements have been along the lines of, uh, that mass vaccination should be stopped with immediate effect and supports early treatment of symptomatic COVID-19 in patients with ivermectin and nutrients. Um, and then another guy, uh, Peter McCulloch, who's um, uh, a, a top scientist, he works in cardiovascular field orig originally, um, has written extensively on um, uh, COVID-19, uh, a world expert on it, and he has um, was originally a supporter of the vaccine, and then the, when he saw the number of um, 
adverse reactions among his patients, he changed his mind um, and talks about the way that the data which shows that COVID-19 vaccines are, are, are causing a problem are just being sat on. Um, uh, so everywhere you look, an attempt to make a, a positive, a positive, uh, an informed assessment of the vaccine, not only in a kind of abstract way, but in terms of, is this something that's right for me? Um, it's just not possible. And it, it seems obvious to, to say it, but um, we are supposed to have a scientific method. People talk about they're following the science and science is what drives us. But the scientific method is not something where a scientist does something and then that is science, and anyone who disagrees with it is unscientific. That's the absolute opposite. The whole point of a scientific system is that you um, have a hypothesis, you test it, and then other people look at it as well. And it's this um, damage, this, this death to the actual idea of science, which is perhaps one of the most alarming and, and long-term damages from the way the pandemic's being handled. Now, AstraZeneca um, vaccine got pretty much sort of knocked on the head because of the very small risk of thrombocytopenia. And they, they still haven't worked out why one person would have that and another wouldn't. And also it's not particularly age related. In fact, it occurs very often in younger people. Thrombocytopenia, that's, that's uh, clots. In... It's, yeah, it's clotting. It's, it's clotting, absolutely. Yeah. And the, you know, the big issue that's emerging and, again, sort of trying to be suppressed for the mRNA vaccines, um, and Moderna is actually much worse than Pfizer, is this heart muscle inflammation called uh, pericarditis or myocarditis. And the interesting thing is, when I interviewed Dr. Banar Talabani, is she said, that you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask how many people you know, get this problem from the vaccine. Um, what you have to ask is how many people get it from COVID? Uh, and you know, is it, if it's sort of more from COVID than the vaccine, you know, then the vaccine will protect. But of course, the assumption there is that everyone who gets vaccinated you know, won't get COVID, which is wrong. But the incidence of myo and pericarditis, which does occur from viral infections, is about four per million. Um, so that's the kind of the baseline. Now, the other source of data that we've got emerging now is from the insurance companies, because the health insurance companies are having to pay out for treatment of myopericarditis, which, by the way, is not often fatal. Uh, so, so it usually occurs, some recover and some don't fully recover. I'd like to talk about that. But Kaiser Permanente, one of the big health insurers, is reporting 537 cases per million vaccinated versus the normal virus rate of four per million um, from those who get COVID. So, you know, there's kind of a, a big difference in number. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the issue of myocarditis <clears throat> is certainly one that's very prominent in long COVID, um, which is something that's still pretty much lurking in the background. Um, I wrote about it about um, nearly a year, uh, about just over a year ago now, um, when it was something that was just being recognised. 
And it's this business of people who've been affected and who um, suddenly start developing a new set of symptoms after it appeared as if they'd recovered. Um, and these symptoms, so excuse me, <coughs> these symptoms can be very varied. They can affect um, lungs and heart and uh, liver and, and a, a wide range of things, which is why it's so hard to um, actually diagnose people, uh, let alone treat them. Um, but we now have uh, something like a million people who have uh, been suffering from COVID for longer than, or suffering from these su subsequent symptoms for more than a year, um, which makes up a, a pretty substantial number of people with chronic disease. Um, I was talking to one of the experts on it the other day, somebody, he's a, a clinician at um, Imperial College in London, and he was an extremely fit man who did cycling quite long distances, and he was completely knocked out by, um, by fatigue. Um, and uh, he's been, he's with a group of, of doctors who are involved in it because they've got COVID as well. And a few things are, are coming up from it. Uh, one of the things is this uh, problems with the, uh, the uh, lining of the uh, arteries, which is where the virus has its effects, a thing called the endothelium. And it's very clear now, much more than it was when I wrote about it originally, that the endothelium uh, is a target for the virus. And it's not clear yet the, whether the, the um, vaccine has an effect on it, but it's um, certainly the case that there's no sign that being vaccinated or not has any effect on your long COVID, um, uh, exactly where you suffer from things and how long it goes on for. Um, so what they're looking at is this myocarditis um, which is this inflammation of the heart muscles and, and uh, problems with the endothelium. And uh, uh, th there are some drugs, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, which are being used against it quite um, successfully. One of them is uh, an old thing uh, called um, uh, colchicine, uh, which actually has been around for nearly 100 years and has been used to keep, treat gout and it seems to have some effectiveness. Rather interestingly, and I don't know if anyone's picking this up, but one of the things that improves the state of your um, endothelium is nitric oxide. Um, in fact, nitric oxide is absolutely essential to the proper functioning of it. Um, and you can do it by um, trying to reduce the inflammation but another thing which uh, increases your uh, supply of nitric oxide uh, quite significantly is, of course, Viagra. Um, so I did suggest that, I, well, I asked whether any kind of trial was being done on Viagra to, as a treatment for myocarditis. Um, the uh, uh, clinician I was talking to thought this was amusing, of course, 
but I don't think it's happening as yet. But one of the things that is happening is that people are doing a lot of self-treatment because there's so little available for long COVID. Um, the, the inflammation and, and strange reactions, the fatigue and things like that, which come up with it, the breathing, um, there really aren't any very coherent uh, treatments. Um, it's not an area that's very well funded and it, there's still a lot of uncertainty about it. Um, so people have been left at home to look after themselves. For those who don't fancy popping Viagra, um, beetroot uh, also promotes right. nitric oxide. <laughs> and there, there's, um, I was, I, I'm sure you saw it too, and one wonders if it's a hoax, etc. But the basketball player, you know, this young guy who's playing and suddenly he collapses, falls over and is dead. You think, how on earth can that happen? So I spoke to a cardiologist and they explained that actually... 13% uh, of people with peri and myocarditis um, are permanently damaged. And if they exert themselves, um, it can induce sudden death. So, I mean, one of the big contentious points is, you know, the vaccine uh, sort of experts say, if you, if you inject the spike protein, it just goes, you know, into that part of the body, it soon degenerates, it doesn't spread. Um, and yet we have very clear studies that show post-vaccination, you can measure significant amounts, measurable amounts of the spike protein in plasma. In other words, it travels. So it, it, it may, I mean, this is just conjectural, but we've heard about people, you know, athletes doing particularly badly. And by the way, it's um, in these sort of athlete-associated perimyocarditis, it's 90% men. That's also interesting. The, uh, there is the possibility that there are a lot more people being damaged by spike proteins, be it from the virus or the vaccine. In other words, having a lower level of perimyocarditis. Uh, so some degree of damage, and again, this could be a percentage of those with long COVID, uh, who actually on extreme exertion uh, you know, it really flares up and in the worst case, uh, you know, can even kill. So that's the kind of, you know, drilling down into the whole area of peri and myocarditis. I don't have numbers to prove this, but I'm getting the strong sense that there's more cases of myo and pericarditis associated with the vaccine, um, the mRNA vaccines, and there's a lot more in Moderna than Pfizer. And Moderna has been stopped in some countries for this reason. Um, than the thrombocytopenia with AstraZeneca. So, you know, if the same rules were applied uh, uh, to the Pfizer vaccine, it might be that that will be, you know, interesting. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> one of the sort of slightly offshoots of the, um, the pandemic and of the fatigue, which a lot of people suffer, whether it's uh, from myocarditis or, or other reasons, um, it's had a big impact on the uh, treatment which had been the standard treatment for about 20 years, which was um, given to people who had CFS, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, or um, ME, myo, and uh, yes, I'm sorry, I, I, I've lost that one for now. But uh, the chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, ME is, is the, myelitis. Yes, uh, uh, sort of, a, yeah, ME. 
myoencephalitis. So it used to be called inflammation of the brain, even though there wasn't evidence for that. So the name changed to chronic fatigue syndrome. There you go. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that the... um, people who suffer the sufferers and there's something like 150,000 um, um, were hugely opposed to the treatment that they were given um, and saying that it really didn't work and we, we, the, the treatment was a combination of um, chronic of um, CBT cognitive behavioral therapy trying to persuade you that you didn't have a, a fatigue problem and secondly, uh, graded exercise, doing a bit more exercise every day. Um, and these treatments were being tried on uh, some doctors who had succumbed to COVID, uh, including the one I was talking to at Imperial. And they were absolutely horrified by uh, A, how unpleasant they were, and B, how utterly ineffective. and they've now been taken off, these treatments have been taken off the NICE approved list after 25 years of um, the experts saying, this is what uh, what works, what helps. There's um, uh, proper randomized control trial evidence to support it. Um, And it turned out that this was yet another example of fudging of data by, um, in this case, not drug companies, but by um, psychiatrists and psychologists who were supporting a a treatment system that really wasn't worth it. So the the pandemic and its direct effect on fatigue um, has had the effect of of getting rid of of at least one useless treatment, um, which means that then people have to start looking for something that actually might make a difference. I'm getting very good anecdotal reports from people with sort of long COVID, post-COVID in terms of recovery, using vitamin C to bowel tolerance and zinc is very important. It's especially for those with the loss of sense of taste or smell post-COVID. Uh, also quercetin, which is the, the excellent anti-inflammatory that happens to target endothelial tissue and the lungs. Uh, it's very rich in red onions, but a red onion will give you 20 milligrams and I'm giving people 500 to 1,000 milligrams. Bromelain, the pineapple enzyme, which actually helps to break down clots. And uh, so, and homocysteine, uh, which I've spoken about a lot, uh, which is a measure of methylation dependent on B vitamins. Homocysteine turns out to be one of the best predictors of the degree of lung damage that does occur. So getting homocysteine down helps. Now the sort of fallback position, because it feels very much like you know, we're now in retreat on on vaccines, you know, the cracks are appearing, the fallback uh, is, you know, vaccinate the vulnerable, and, you know, don't worry about everybody else. Uh, And I, you know, generally, that's kind of been what I've said, but there's something that needs to be understood there too, which is that it is actually the most vulnerable people who are having the most severe reactions to vaccines and also obviously the most severe reactions to COVID. So I think that uh, the podcast we did with Dr. Malcolm Kendrick was very interesting there. He had to be vaccinated. It wasn't his natural orientation, but he works in care homes. 
And he took a, a low-dose aspirin for two weeks following vaccination, plus vitamin C, plus vitamin D, basically anything to reduce clotting. So not only are we talking about the kind of alternative approach of boosting your own natural defenses with vitamin C, D, zinc, and other such things, but I think we do also need to be talking about, especially in the vulnerable, who, where the case for being vaccinated is, is probably the best, in what people should do around the time of vaccination to reduce um, the risk of clotting. And as long as there is a climate of total denial that clotting occurs, that pericarditis is linked to the vaccine, then we won't have an intelligent conversation about how to be vaccinated with the minimum risk of harm. I think, I think that's particularly relevant in the case of care homes and elderly people who we, we know very well are, are more at risk. Um, the, the fact is though that the kind of sensible basic things which you're talking about are certainly not available in care homes. And I, I know that there are stories of people who even tried to take regular uh, fish oil or, or um, uh, vitamin C were, were had, it was, uh, treated as if this was a medical treatment and you had to ask your doctor and the care home said that they were only nurses and they weren't um, established to do that, which uh, seems ridiculous overkill, particularly when you think that um, many of these patients are already in a state of um, polypharmacy. They, they've got anything up to... Uh, six or eight or maybe even more drugs which they've been prescribed um, for various conditions which come up as you get older, whether it's for joint pains or for um, heart problems or for blood pressure and so on. Um, and then for each one, there's a drug for it. And, and that's the way the GP system is designed, is that you identify things and then give people drugs. So you get at the towards the end of life, as it were, um, you get these people in the care homes who are on this very high amount of drugs. And not only is there no information on how those drugs interact with each other, um, uh, but there's no information at all about whether they, what, what they do to the immune system. Because even if you're going to be um, give, making sure that people in the care homes are vaccinated, you, the, in order for the vaccination to be successful, you need to have a, um, a, a functioning immune system. And so it would make sense to do things that improve that. But it seems very unlikely that the heavy um, drug use that they're going through will do that. And it may well be having other effects and, and making for greater vulnerability in, in other areas. And that's why we're doing a, doing a study on vitamin C in care homes. And the in interesting there is we're now into the ninth month of getting through the red tape um, through the university and NHS. <laughs> and only when we get through this next check, which I think we're pretty much at now, will the study then go into ethical approval process, which is about another three months. So. Uh, it's, it's going to probably take us well over a year before we're allowed to start what actually, and this is extraordinary, will be the first ever um, trial in care homes anywhere in the world to establish 
how much vitamin C a person needs, not to treat COVID, but simply to have a normal functioning immune system. And uh, also on the same sort of territories, I think it's got to be pretty much our last comment, we've run out of time. The fallback position uh, from the government on vitamin C, and I'll, I'll read it actually, this was the last part of the response to the letter to, in the house was, however, vitamin C is currently being trialed in the REMAP-CAP study for patients with COVID-19 acquired pneumonia. And what happened there was this study was meant to start last uh, uh, June before last, and it, they had no vitamin C. That was the story. They, they had no supply of vitamin C. And we managed to unblock that uh, towards the end of last year. There is now a product it's called Pascorbin. It's intravenous vitamin C, 7.5 grams. It's available on the National Health Service. And I'm saying this because if anybody uh, does have a relative in hospital with COVID, uh, it's a prescribable intravenous vitamin C. We've put the suppliers together with the REMAP-CAP um, uh, uh, study people. And there are now people being enrolled for the first time uh, since the beginning of COVID into a UK, uh, if you like, government-endorsed vitamin C trial. So it takes an awful long time to get these so-called alternatives in. But meanwhile, vaccines can be rolled out extremely fast. Uh, Jerome, we've run out of time. Uh, it's been brilliant talking to you. This field is moving so fast. I feel we'll have to catch up again in a couple of months. So um, thank, you, thank you immensely. Well, thank you. Fascinating stuff. I keep learning new things from, from you and your research anyway. So great for me. Stay well. And you. <laughs>